Mark said we're studying the book of John on Sunday nights and I invite you to take a copy of God's Word and look with us to our passage found in the book of John chapter 11. And we'll begin reading with verse 47. Book of John chapter 11. Begin reading with verse 47. Last time we saw where Jesus, demonstrating his power, came and Lazarus, who'd been dead for four days, Jesus brought him back. Now, again, of all the miracles that Jesus did, this is the only one you couldn't explain away. I said that last, last week. All the other miracles people have tried to explain away. They cannot explain this one. There are too many witnesses. Something happened. You would think that raising Lazarus from the dead, that would be the last miracle Jesus needed to do, that everyone would flock to Jesus. You would have assumed raising Lazarus from the dead, even the religious leaders would come and fall down realizing that Jesus is the Messiah. But that's not what happened. In fact, the complete opposite. So beginning in verse 47, this is after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, we find these words. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative. But being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews and went away from there into the country near the wilderness in the city of Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now, the Passover, the Jews were near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. And so they were seeking for Jesus, and they were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will, not, that he will come to the feast at all? Now, the chief priests and the Pharisee had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Pray with me. Now, Father, tonight as we look at this passage, a passage, Father, that sometimes we just really overlook, and yet there's a message here that we need to hear tonight. We thank you, Father. That from the beginning of time, you had a plan. And that plan was for your son, Jesus, to die on a cross for our sins. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. People love conspiracy theories. They've always have. They've always been a part of American Culture. In fact, if you go back even in the, in the 1700s, people were spreading conspiracy theories. Now, by definition, a conspiracy th- theory is a proposition or accusation that two or more people have secretly met to cause or cover up wrongdoing. 
And that maybe that's why we like conspiracy theories, because anytime something happens, we cannot believe it just happened. We have to believe something or someone was behind it. And so that's why people love them. That's why people listen to them. That's why people talk about them. I mean, before computers, we just heard it about word of mouth. Now with computers, we're reading it all the time, all the different conspiracy theories out there. I have a couple of, book, couple of books in my library on conspiracy theories, and there are so many. For example, uh, the assassination of JFK or the death of Marilyn Monroe. There are conspiracies about 9-11. There are conspiracies even about the NBA playoff, how they're all rigged. Okay, that one's true. Conspiracy about Katrina. There's many conspiracies. I just recently learned about the Denver International Airport. I've been there twice. I didn't know there was a conspiracy about the airport. But what happened, the airport was $2 billion over budget. And so they began to speculate why. So they conclude there must be some kind of underground structure under the Denver airport. And it must be bonkers because it was $2 billion. And the only person that could do this was some, some uh, controlling group like the Illuminati. And, and so this conspiracy grew and grew. And, and then they said, oh, no, I, I bet it was built by neo-Nazis. And, in fact, they say that if you look at the, the, uh, the runways above, they look like swastikas. And there are murals everywhere. There are paintings everywhere. And there are certain hidden messages in the murals. And I, when we were there, I noticed people looking at the murals. I just thought they, they loved art. I didn't realize they're looking for some kind of conspiracy. Do you know why most people like conspiracy theories? There's a psychological reason. If you know a conspiracy theory, that makes you smarter than the other people. You know something they don't know. And we want to know something other people don't know. And again, the common thread of a conspiracy theory that there's a secret meeting occurred, a plan was devised, and some sinister plot is underway to do something underhanded. Sometimes there's conspiracy theories, and sometimes there really are conspiracies. What we just read tonight is a conspiracy. A group of men decided to take matters into their own hands, and they wanted to kill Jesus. It says plainly in verse 53, so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. I mean, if this was a court of law, this would stop right here. This is conspiracy to commit murder. That's what they're doing. We, we learn in, in verse 47, it says, therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convene a council. And so we now know the chief priests, we know the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin are together. Uh, although technically the, that word there, the uh, council, doesn't mean the whole council, just part of it. This was an informal meeting of some of the Sanhedrin. And they're gathering together for a reason. They want to kill Jesus. And so they're gathered at this secret room at an undisclosed location, coming up with this conspiracy, but never realizing what they were doing was ordained of God. While they were planning the death of Jesus in this passage, they had no idea from the beginning of time this was God's plan all along. And tonight as we look at this passage, it really shows us the power and the sovereignty of our Lord. Notice tonight, their positions, these conspirators. First, they were indifferent to his power. 
They were indifferent to his power. New Testament scholar Leon Morris wrote, uh, when people do not want to believe, they always find a way of discounting even the strongest evidence. And I find that to be true. Uh, there are times I'm witness, witnessing to people and I realize they don't want to believe, no matter what I tell them, no matter what evidence. In fact, I've even said that to some people. I've asked, if I give you indisputable evidence, will you give your life to Christ? And they would say, no, I will never give my life to Christ. I don't care what evidence you give me. I don't care if it's true. And so this is what we're seeing here. They were indifferent to his power. I mean, look at verse 47. They said, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. The miracles they dismissed. They admit he's doing signs. That, that word sign is a word meaning there's a miracle with a message. They are saying that Jesus is doing miracles, and the miracles are signs. In other words, there are messages in his miracles, but they won't accept it. In John chapter 2, Jesus turned water into wine. John chapter 4, Jesus uh, healed the nobleman's son. John chapter 5, he raised a crippled man by that pool. John chapter 6, he fed over 5,000 people. John chapter 9, he healed a man born blind. John chapter 11, he healed Lazarus from the dead. And they admit there are signs. They admit, hey, we know there are miracles. We know there are signs, but we're not accepting it. We are dismissing it. I mean, even the raising of Lazarus, I mean, there are too many people to deny it, but they've already made up their minds. We are not going to accept the facts, what Jesus is doing. They had enough facts to prove to them that Jesus is from God and that Jesus was the Messiah. You know, Jesus told a story found in the other Gospels about a rich man and Lazarus, not, not the Lazarus in chapter 11. He said, this rich man went to hell and he asked Abraham, please, hey, Abraham, send an angel. Send someone to tell my brothers to believe. And in Luke chapter 16, verse 31, Abraham said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Well, now in John chapter 11, we know that's true. Lazarus has come out of the grave, out of the tomb, and they won't believe. The miracles were dismissed. Not only that, the master they despised. Again, in verse 48, they said, If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're looking at Jesus. They're saying, wait a minute. Do you realize people are following him? You know, there, he has a crowd when he teaches, when he preaches. There are people listening to him. He has disciples. They're following him. And instead of following Jesus themselves, they, they start plotting and planning. We don't want this Jesus. We don't want this Jesus to be the master over the people. We don't want Jesus to rule over the people. Now, remember, who's talking? I mean, these are the key leaders of that day, the, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, for example. They were divided into two groups. We, we talked about this year, a few months ago on the Wednesday night, looking at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. You have the Pharisees, the conservative ones, and then you have the Sadducees, they were the liberals. They were always arguing. They didn't agree on anything. The only thing they ever agreed on was Jesus, and they wanted to get rid of him. They belonged to that never-Jesus movement. No matter what Jesus did, we are not going to follow him. And they didn't want anyone else to follow him. 
Because if they followed Jesus, then what was going to happen? The Sanhedrin couldn't be the leader of their lives. Oh, my goodness, what a contrast between them and John the Baptist. John the Baptist made that famous statement, he must increase and I must decrease. This group of people are saying, we will not decrease, he must die. Here you have a first century battle over lordship and control. If Jesus is Lord, that, that can't be. And they despise the master. And then we see the motive that was declared. They tell us why they did it. Again, in verse 48, the last part of that. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If we don't stop Jesus, the Romans are going to come and take over. Now, by the way, this sounds at the beginning, if you don't know anything else, that this sounds logical. This sounds patriotic. It may, may, may even sound noble. You know, if we don't do something, the Romans are going to come and they're going to take it away. And the Romans would do that. That's what the Romans did. If you didn't follow Caesar, they would come with power. Now, what the problem was, they really didn't understand what Jesus was doing. They didn't understand Jesus, the ram of his kingdom. But if you look carefully what they say, you find the true motive. I love it. It says, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Do you hear what they're really concerned about? If we don't stop Jesus, the Romans are going to come, and we're going to lose our place. We're not going to be leaders anymore. We're not going to get any more perks. Oh, they, they mentioned the Romans. But they're concerned about themselves. If the Romans come, we're going to lose our position. We're going to lose our power. John MacArthur writes, for the Sanhedrin, Jesus threatened the status quo. His member were not judging the situation based on objective standards of right and wrong, but how would they be affected? Rule of thumb. Be careful of people who don't want to give up power. Be careful of people who don't want to lose their power. And you find them everywhere. You'll find them in churches. You'll find them in denominations. You'll find them in offices. You'll find them in political power, whatever it may be. Be careful of people that would do everything in their power to keep everything status quo so that they could have power. Because that's what's happening here. They were not concerned about their nation. They were concerned about themselves. So they were indifferent to his power. But what they didn't realize, number two, they were involved by his providence. Verse 49 and following. If you have never read this passage before, John is about to swerve. John is about to take you one place, and then he takes you to another place. John takes you to one direction, and then he takes you to another direction. We've been reading how they are plotting to kill Jesus. And we are upset and we are angry, as we should be. But now John's going to say, but by the way, this was God's plan all along. Professor Robert Smith talked about providence. He said, providence is like Hebrew. It's best to re be read backwards. I I've said it before, the most difficult doctrine for us to understand. I don't think we'll ever understand it. 
is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. The Bible proclaims both of those is true. I accept both of them as true. What it means is that God is in total control. Nothing happens apart from the will of God. But at the very same time, we have free will. I can't put those two together. The Bible declares it. The Bible teaches it and proclaims it. I believe it. Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, who believed strongly in the sovereignty of God, but he also believed in the free will of man. He said it was almost like they ran parallel like a railroad track, and they will run parallel into the end of time, and the end of time somehow they will meet. And that's what we're seeing in this passage. You have these men plotting the death of Jesus on their own free will, but while they're doing that, that is still the plan of God. We're seeing the sovereignty of God here. So look at it. it the sovereignty of God is, is in the priest that was installed. I mean, go back in, in verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Okay, let's, let's just stop there. Now, by the way, that word, that year, doesn't mean he was established that year. It meant the year, that year that Jesus is going to be crucified. Caiaphas is the one there. Leon Morris again said that faithful year, that year which God so actively, uh, decisively for the salvation of the world acted upon, he's there. Now the high priest was appointed by the Roman authorities. Again, a few, uh, a few months ago we talked about this on Wednesday night looking at the history of it. And, and so they were appointed by the Roman authorities. And here's how they did it. The, the person who offered them the most money got the job. Nothing has changed in thousands of years, okay? So Caiaphas paid for this position. And we know that he was a very brutal person, and he was very rich because he got money from the Romans. And he's been doing this for 18 years. 18 years he's been the high priest. We know he was a member of the Sadducees. That's the liberal group. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the miracle of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in the angels. They did not believe in afterlife. They said, this is all you get. Now, the conservative, the Pharisees, they hated the Romans. The Sadducees loved the Romans. And they, in fact, they wanted to be like the Romans. And Caiaphas and probably the rest of them kind of dressed like the Romans and talked like the Romans and, and, and kept the customs of the Romans. The best way, someone described it this way, think of like the mafia. Here's Caiaphas. He's the godfather. He's in this meeting, they're arguing, they're debating, and all of a sudden the Godfather speaks, and everyone just gets quiet because this is the man who has all the power. This is the man that has all the money. This is the man that's going to get things done. And you notice how he starts off. He, he, he insults him. Verse 49, he says, you know nothing at all. This, this sounds like somebody with a lot of power. You know, listen to you. You don't know what's going on. You know nothing at all, verse 50, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and for the whole nation not to perish. You hear what he's saying? They're arguing, what are we going to do But Jesus? Caiaphas raises his hands. Everybody got quiet. He said, you don't know what you're talking about. We got to take them out. It's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to die. It is that logical to Caiaphas by the sovereignty of God, Caiaphas was in that role. Caiaphas didn't realize that God ordained him to be there. But you need a man like Caiaphas because if you had a better man, he would have made this plot. 
If you had a better man, he wouldn't have had the stomach to say, let's kill Jesus. And we see the sovereignty of God even in the priest that was installed 18 years earlier. But we also see the sovereignty of God in the prophecy that God initiated. I mean, look, look what Caiaphas says. Again, in verse 50, you know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and for the whole nation not to perish. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, listen, one man, it's better for one man to die so the whole nation doesn't die. It's better for one man to die better than the whole nation to perish. That's one of the most amazing statements of Scripture because that's the salvation plan. Here's the Godfather planning to kill Jesus to serve his selfish plans, but it was already ordained that it was going to happen. Caiaphas thought he was saying Jesus would die instead of the nation, but God turned around and meant that Jesus would die for the nation. And then John adds more to that. He said, not just for the nation of Israel, but for all. Look at verse 51. In case we missed it, John tells us. John wants us to see this. So right after Caiaphas makes his statement, John gives his editorial comment, verse 51. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative. In other words, he doesn't even realize it's coming from, from somewhere else. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might be gathered together into one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. You see the sovereignty of God here. The enemy saying, let's kill Jesus, and then he gives the reason to kill Jesus is actually the plan and the reason Jesus is going to go to the cross. And you see, God is still in control. John Piper, who, who writes, in the mind of Caiaphas, the substitution was this, we'll kill Jesus so the Romans won't kill us. But in the mind of God, the substitution was, I will kill my son so that I won't have to kill you. Caiaphas hated Jesus. He hated everything that Jesus stood for. He opened his mouth, and the gospel of Jesus Christ came out of his mouth. He didn't even realize it. That's the sovereignty of God. And the irony, he just told everybody else they didn't know anything. I mean, look at that. I mean, I'll go back and look at the story. He tells you don't know anything. And so he starts talking, and what he's talking is prophecy. He doesn't even realize it's prophecy. Third, there's also God's sovereignty in the plan that God in instigated verse 53 so from that day on they planned together to kill jesus from that day on but god had planned from the beginning of time jesus was going to go to the cross no one took the life of jesus he laid down his life one of the most powerful passages of scripture about the sovereignty of god and the free will of man is found in the book of acts chapter 2 Verse 22 and 23. Let me, let me read it to you. Acts 2, 22, 23. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, as you yourself know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Sovereignty of God. Then he goes on. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. That's the sovereignty of God. It's predetermined, ordained of God, but you're accountable. You made a choice. And here is Caiaphas. 
not even realizing that this plan they are beginning was the plan all along. When I was younger, much younger, like in high school, I used to play chess, play chess tournaments. I'm fairly good, not, not great, but I was fairly good. I had an opportunity to play a master in chess. It, a real master in chess, they're at another level. And I beat him. No, I didn't. I, I, did. he, I wasn't even close. It was, I think, 10 moves what it was. But after, I, 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 after he beat me, we started talking, and he, he gave me a compliment. He said, no, you're pretty good. I can tell you, you look you know, three to four moves ahead. I said, well, how many moves do you look ahead? He said, um, somebody like me, he said, usually in chess, I'll look anywhere between 12 to 15 moves ahead. Now, you think of all the combinations, that's incredible. A grandmaster will think about 25 moves ahead. It boggles the mind. So as we were talking about the game, he said, so every time you move, I knew exactly what I wanted you to do, and I made you do it. You didn't make me do anything. All my choices were my choices. He said, yeah, but I made you do it because I knew what you would do because I could. that is a glimpse, a glimpse of something God can do even much better, that God can be sovereign, we can have choices, and it falls in his plan. They were indifferent to his power. They were involved by his providence, but third, they were ignorant of his purpose. From 54 to 57, John is just telling us what they're doing while they're trying to kill Jesus. They don't know where Jesus is. In verse 54, they tell us where he's staying. He's staying about 10 miles outside of Jerusalem. But Jesus didn't leave because of fear. Jesus did not leave because of fear, because he's coming back to Jerusalem. The reason Jesus left was because of timing. Same thing in the story of Lazarus. You see, most people don't realize crucifixions happen every day. It didn't just happen one time a year. Every day there was a crucifixion. Humanly speaking, Jesus disappeared because he knew the timing had to be right. He had to go through the Passover. He had to spend time with the disciples. Everything had to be perfect for the crucifixion. So he wasn't running out of fear. He was just allowing the providence to take place. So what were they saying, verse 55? They were seeking Jesus, and they were saying to one another, as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come into the feast at all? They began to say, well, I guess he won't even come. He knows we're going to kill him. Well, what is he going to do? Is he going to hide? Is he going to change his appearance? By the way, in the book of Mark, chapter 11, we know exactly what Jesus did at the feast. He went to the feast. He went to the temple. While he was in the temple, he overthrew uh, the money changers out and overthrown the tables. Then he came back to the temple again, and they didn't do anything. So how did they scheme? Verse 57. They gave orders to anyone that knew where he was to report it so they might seize him. They had lookouts. You see Jesus, you tell us because we want to arrest you. They had a plan. But what they didn't realize, God had a plan. One man wrote, they thought they had the perfect plan. They did. It just wasn't their plan. It was God's plan. Jesus is going to come to Jerusalem. And what they thought was their idea had been ordained from the beginning of time. God's plan is perfect. 
God is in control. Sometimes we don't see it at the moment. Sometimes we have to look backwards to see it. But God is in control. Even tonight, you're not here by accident. You're watching online. You're not watching by accident. There's something God wants you to learn. There's a principle God wants you to take to heart. It may be you needed to hear about the sovereignty of God. It may be you need to hear about your personal responsibility. It may be that you realize God can use you. I mean, if God can use Caiaphas, he can use us. Or it may be you realize Jesus died for you. And you've never given your life to Christ. Will you do that tonight? If you're watching online, if you'd like to give your life to Christ in a personal way, just text the word today at 270-398-5005. And a minister will give you a call. But if you're here tonight in person, you've never given your life to Christ, please understand from the beginning of time, it was God's plan for Jesus to die, to shed his blood so that we will have eternal life. But it's a gift we must accept. And if you don't accept it, that means you're rejecting it. Would you stand and bow your heads? Heavenly Father, you are sovereign. And Father, you're in control. And Father, I admit sometimes we don't understand that. Father, we cannot grasp that concept that you are in control and yet we have choices. But you're a God big enough that that can be true. And so, Father, tonight, even though it is ordained for us to be here, there may be some decisions that need to be made by personal choice, by giving their life to Christ or repenting of a particular sin or rededicating their life or or joining this church. Father, whatever it may be, we're here for a reason and we're here for a purpose. Help us, Father, to fulfill that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.